the title that is on this presentation was actually drafted before the CDC guidelines. But the CDC guidelines, whether you like them or not, have done one thing in America, and that is they have established the term standard treatment. And so that's here to stay. That's in the woodwork, and I don't see any reversal of this. And I'd like to see a show of hands before getting started. How many of you in here prescribe opioids and have a patient over the CDC guideline level? Now, if you don't, I don't know why you're here, because my, my talks are the heavy end of the spectrum. For those patients that are difficult, going to have heavy-duty medical treatment, and are frankly not doing well in the current system. What you're going to hear today will be the start of what I call an advance from treating patients symptomatically, which is what we've been doing in this field for the last 50 years, to starting to do protocols to get at the basic causes of pain, which are fundamentally the activation of the microglial cell and the creation of neuroinflammation within the central nervous system. That has been our missing link, and you will see an introduction to that as we go along today. Disclosures and objectives. And I want to cover these for just a quick minute. Define standard chronic pain treatment. Now, prior to the CDC guidelines, the only standard that was ever ever developed was the World Health Organization standards of 1982. And we've had no new standards since that time till now. And make, make no mistake about it, whether you like the CDC guidelines, they have established that when you get up to around 80 to 100 milligrams of morphine equivalent a day, that is standard. Now, California, where I'm at, our level is 80. We reevaluate the patient at 80. Some states are 90, some are 100. But bottom line is, we're now starting to define standard treatment in morphine equivalents. It's a new concept, frankly, historically, and it's, it's quite important to keep that in mind. So defining chronic standard pain treatment today has changed a little bit in the past year. Secondly, identify which patients may have metabolic and genetic defects that require high-dose opioids. Now, let me dispel a quick myth right out front. What I have been doing in Los Angeles since 1975 is taking these patients. And we have a special unit to evaluate them. And so we have been doing this, taking patients well over 100 milligrams and morphine equivalents a day since 1975. We've run through hundreds of patients. Only in the last couple of years, however, have we had the diagnostic capability to start understanding these people. Now, let me dispel a quick myth. Those people that have got to go up over 100 milligrams of morphine equivalent a day are just not some helpless fibromyalgia or arthritic patient who is abusing opioids. These people are truly sick with all kinds of pathology. They are a truly ill population. And they are the population that's going to require, frankly, our best physicians, nurse practitioners, PAs, and PharmDs to treat them. In other words, those of us who are on the medical end, we're going to have to take these difficult cases. So I want to make sure you walk out of here 
And when you see somebody in your own practice or elsewhere that's taking these high dosages, that's not an accident. These people are far more disturbed than I previously thought, and I hate to admit. And you'll get some feel for that. Explain how to implement treatment strategies for patients who fail standard treatment. Now let me explain this real quickly. Frankly, since about 1895, our pain treatment hadn't changed a whole lot. In 1895, we had an anti-inflammatory agent called aspirin. We had an opioid called heroin and one called morphine. We had turmeric root and a few other things called a neuropathic agent. In other words, we haven't changed a whole lot till today. Now what you're going to see today is my first attempt to develop a treatment regimen or protocol to add to our current standard symptomatic treatments. Okay. So this is somewhat historic in that we're attempting to go at treating neuroinflammation. And I've given two more lectures tomorrow night, and I hope you pick up what we're doing so far and getting some idea of where we're going. Okay? But this is not for the faint of heart. This is for hardcore medical people, well-trained, well-committed, who are willing to move into curative measures as opposed to just throwing a bunch of opioids and neuropathic agents and an epidural block and a pump at somebody. Okay? That's what this is all about. To treat these people, you've got to go further than our current symptomatic portfolio allows. The failure of minimal results from standard treatment is now our major unmet need in pain management. And if you start taking a history of some of these people who are unable to get good help, you find they've been all over the country, they've been to universities, psychologists, psychiatrists, you know, all kinds of people. No help. And that's because they're not understood. And a lot of them have pejorative names. But it's our biggest unmet need. And now that we've got these CDC guidelines, where people have got a good excuse either not to pay for something or to treat them, we've got a lot of these people cast out. Anybody seen anybody without their medicines lately since CDC passed? Everybody has. Okay. So they're out there and they're all over the place. Okay. What is standard pain treatment? Here fundamentally is the modern day definition. The first two sentences are really the World Health Organization three-step ladder, but we've added to it the daily opioid dosage of 80 to 100 milligram of morphine equivalents. Here is the 1982 three-step ladder, still worthwhile, still has a lot of merit, but this three-step ladder has never been well understood by people, I don't think, and that was you started off with non-opioid analgesic and adjuvant therapy defined as such things as physical therapy, acupuncture, and then you added to it a weak opioid, and if that failed, you added to it you didn't drop out anything, you added to a potent opioid. And so those principles are still there. And I point this out because it's absolutely necessary that the treatments that are going to be used for these heavy-duty cases should never have gone without the ability of physical therapy and 
nutritional supplements and other kinds of non-pharmacologic therapy. And, and then these days, I guess you just can't say it too much. And definition of a treatment failure, a regimen of non-opioid measures and daily oral opioid dosage of 80 to 100 that doesn't keep the patient mentally and physically functional enough to carry on activities of daily living. So that would be a treatment failure. There's nothing wrong with listing in a patient's chart that they're failing. Do you know we do this all the time in cardiology, rheumatology, endocrinology? Somehow in pain management, nobody wants to say they failed. Nobody wants to say this treatment ain't working. But it's, you have to do that. In other words, you have to come right up front, set some criteria, and really be honest about it and say, this patient's not functioning. This patient's spending six hours a day at home in bed. This patient can't take care of their family. This person can't drive a car. This person's not eating three meals a day. In other words, this treatment is failing. It's failing. And we've got to come right up front and use that term, treatment failure. Okay? Now, in my state, that's been a requirement since 1990 to define treatment failure. And if you can't turn around the failure aspect of it, you've got to discharge the patient. Okay? In other words, you just can't go on administering a treatment that's not working. See what I'm getting at? But somehow or another, this pain management field doesn't want to use the terminology that's used in cardiology, endocrinology, gastroenterology, rheumatology. They don't want to use that term. But that term is used everywhere else. Okay? There's nothing wrong with us using it, and I believe it's time we have to use those terms. If it's failing, it's failing. Now, you've probably seen these tables, so I'm not going to belittle them or extend on them, but these are the 90 milligram of morphine equivalents commonly used in practice. Uh, and quite frankly, the vast, vast majority of pain patients in America can get along very well on those dosages. They get along quite well. And there's no question. About the time you see somebody taking nine Norcos a day and they're not making it, a light better go on. There's something wrong here. About the time they're taking 10 Percocet, 10 325s a day, and they're in bed half the day, they don't keep their appointments, they're showing up in the emergency room all the time, some light better go on and say, that is a failing treatment. That is not making it. And so those levels really do mean something. Now, they met something before CDC, and they mean something afterward. It's just when CDC just copied everybody else and tried to make a big political issue of it, but these numbers were already there. And fentanyl. I'm going to say quite a bit about fentanyl today because fentanyl is a blessing and a curse. Okay? But, and you need to understand where fentanyl fits very, very securely. You need to understand fentanyl to treat these people, and you need to understand it very well, the pros and cons, and what you're into the minute you pick up that prescription pad and write fentanyl. Okay? Life has changed for you and that patient with that fentanyl prescription. So I want to talk to you a little bit about fentanyl, perhaps in ways that nobody else can, and certainly pharma can't talk to you about this. No. Bottom line is this. If you put on 
a 25 microgram patch, you've exceeded standards. Okay? Let me repeat that. If you've got a patient with 125 microgram per hour fentanyl patch, you have exceeded the CDC standards. Okay? A lot of people don't understand that. If you've gone to a 50, you've doubled them almost. So remember, when you put the fentanyl patch on, morphine equivalence-wise, you've gone into non-standard territory. Non-standard territory. Recognizing the failing patient? You, you know all of these. And they've tried all a lot of therapies. Uh, they run out of their medicines, emergency room visit, doctor shopping, better housebound, angry and hostile. We've all seen them. We all know it. It's just that when we see these behaviors, and sometimes we call them aberrant behaviors, we don't connect dots, and we don't think treatment failure, we think a bad patient. Okay, and all of us have to work at that. I do too. Now, these people are called a lot of majority of names. I've got a few I could add to the list. Okay? So we call these people a lot of pejorative names sometimes when they're not, it's not, really shouldn't be used, okay? The popular one today, if you don't know what to call them, call them an opioid use disorder, okay? The new catch-all phrase of somebody you don't like, opioid use disorder. There's supposed to be some very specific criteria for it, and if you read the psychiatric guidelines, there is, but they're already misused. They're already being misused. I see people referred to me all the time with that diagnosis now, and they're not disordered. They're not practicing aberrant behavior. These are just people who are failing standard treatment. That's all. Now, one thing I do want to put up here, we've heard a lot of talk here in this conference. And last night, Dr. Pasha gave a wonderful presentation. And he also made a point as to who the real problems are in society are. And even he mentioned the young male. Now, See this profile here? Let me tell you where that came from. In Los Angeles, within 10 miles of my office, we had the first doctor go to prison for overprescribing. That profile comes from her patients. Okay? So a young male under age 30 is the person you've got to watch out for. If they're a young male under age 30, they better come in in a wheelchair and two grandmothers and a cast. <laughs> <laughs> now, what I'm going to just show you here is some data from my own facility to make a point or two on some of these people. Uh, here's 101 patients that we took in. Minimum dose, 150 morphine equivalents a day. Maximum, 3,000 a day. So these are people referred to us with dosages somewhere between 200 and 3,000 morphine equivalents a day. That's who these people are on the slide, 101 of them. And we've tried to analyze these as best we can. They break down males about 60-40, nothing unusual there. But they also show up three characteristics that I want to call to your attention.
not just right now, but another two or three times between now and 6.30. One is, all these people had centralized pain. Medical professionals must know how to diagnose centralized pain and the presence of neuroinflammation. That's the bottom line. You've got to know how to do that because you're going to key everything off that pretty much. Secondly, these people who are taking that high dosages of, of, of morphine, we've yet to find somebody with normal genetics. Yet to find somebody with normal genetics. And the more we test them, the more abnormalities we find. So these people have a lot of genetic metabolic defects. Now, it's expensive to test them, and everybody can't do that, but if you do have the money to test them and you start doing it, you can. Uh, and I might say a few more words about it, but just take my word for it for right. Over 90% have cytochrome P450 defects, and then when you start testing for transporters, opioid receptor binding, and some of these things, it even goes up higher. And they don't just have one defect, they may have multiple defects. So these people not only have a terrible pain problem, they've got genetic defects. And then lastly, I want to call your attention to this. There is about a fifth of these patients that we've had referred to us have opioid malabsorption. Opioid malabsorption. And you have to be a, have your antenna up for this. Now, who has opioid malabsorption? The big cause today is all the abdominal and pelvic surgery done on Americans. I want you to think about it for a minute. How many people do you know that you've had come in your practice, they've had cesarean sections, gallbladder, appendectomy, prostatectomy, oophorectomies, hysterectomies, and a bunch of other ectomies? Okay? Now, all those people who had all those surgeries bank it. They're not going to be able to absorb a lot of your oral opioids. You're going to have to go to alternative routes of administration. Okay? And I'll cover a little more of that in a second. But these three characteristics are part and parcel of this subgroup of patients who are terribly ill and who keep failing standard treatment. Uh, this is another little thing that's very fascinating. We took 40 of these patients and hired a an assistant to go through and take a detailed history on where they've been. And this is incredible. These are 40 consecutive patients, and we hired a, an assistant to do this, to go through and ask, how many physicians had these 40 patients consulted about their pain? It was 461. How many pain specialists had you consulted? 172. How many psychologists and psychiatrists? 104. How many universities? 23. In other words, these people have been wandering around America, going to our best universities, our best facilities, best everything, and nobody's been able to help them. So they keep traveling. So they're going to call on you next. And you're going to be ready. Right? right? Absolutely. <laughs> I may not be ready, but you, you may be ready. <laughs> okay. Now, the other thing that we've attempted to do and we have a poster on this out here that you might want to look at. And that is, we attempted to try to define what's wrong with these people. What is the ideologic cause of their pain? Now, why did I say this? Look around. Open up your book. 
We have neuropathic pain. We have myofascial pain. We have opioid use disorders. We have radiculopathies. We have all kinds of vague terms. Tell that to Blue Shield these days. They want to know what is the specific ideologic cause, okay? Now, we attempted to do this at some expense, I might add, to figure this out. What's interesting is there's only a small number of etiologic causes of pain that force a patient into those high dosages. In other words, you're not, you don't see fibromyalgia up there. You don't see osteoarthritis up there. You don't see TMJ up there. You don't see bad bunions up there. Okay. You don't see, oh, another one. I just love lumbar sprain, degenerative spine disc. I go back and look at some of my own papers, and I've used some of the most vague descriptions you could imagine. You know why? I didn't have any idea what they had. So I called it something. Now we're not going to do that anymore. We're going to try on these patients to give them a specific ideologic diagnosis. And here are the ones that we use today. I want to call your attention to two or three things here for a moment. Arachnoiditis, you're going to hear a lot about. Those patients that have severe neck or lumbar spine problems and who have failed back surgery syndrome, the vast majority of those people will have arachnoiditis. And that's something that for us medical folks, we're going to have to, you're going to have to know about. And within a year or so, you'll learn to read the x-rays. Okay, RSD, CRPS, you're familiar with. Here's one you may not be familiar with. About the third most common reason to show up at my clinic taking 500 milligrams of morphine is a genetic connective tissue disease. The most common, Ehlers-Danlos syndrome. Second most common cause, Marfan syndrome. Okay, so genetic connective tissue diseases is out there. We've got a lot of other things, sickle cell, porphyria, rheumatoid spondylitis. Genetic disease begets all kinds of problems and a need for high-dose opioids. So genetic disease is a major factor in those people who fail standard treatments for a lot of these patients. Peritoneal adhesions with neuropathies. The big cause of malabsorption are people who have had all these surgeries or other problems, and when they develop these adhesions, and these adhesions can be amazing. I mean, they can go from diaphragm to pelvis. They can go from spine to umbilicus. And as they do that, they trap nerves. And so these nerves are trapped in a matrix of adhesions. And guess what? It hurts. Badly. Badly. And uh, one of the treatments we're trying right now shows some ability to dissolve adhesions. Keep our fingers crossed. But there actually is some efforts to see if we can dissolve adhesions within the spinal cord or as well as within the abdomen, medically. Well, I don't know if it's going to work or not, but nevertheless, we've got to give it a shot. Okay, other things that are important, post-viral syndromes, don't have a lot of time to go into it, other than to say we have a group of patients who wake up one day with a headache that never goes away. They can be walking down a park one day, and next thing they know, their chest and their head and their neck hurts, and it never goes away. And you start doing viral titers on those, and you'll get shocked. And we've been doing those viral titers, and what we believe is that the virus sets up... Uh, an autoimmune post-viral response, and these people are sick. And in fact, they run our highest inflammatory markers, actually. So that's them. 
Lyme disease has crept into the top eight. New thing. So some patients with Lyme disease have a terrible neuropathies and, and myopathies as well as encephalopathies. Some of these patients with Lyme disease do develop an encephalopathy. They become demented and they become totally, totally debilitated and have to have caretakers. So Lyme disease has now moved up, autoimmune disorders and traumatic brain injury. So those are the lineup of patients who need over 100 milligrams of morphine equivalents. Now, there may be another diagnosis or two, but this takes care of probably 90% of them. My message to you is this. This may be great to you. Fine. But you'll get the hang of it. When we get a patient that's, that's in those dosages, I think we have an obligation to try and give them as specific and etiologic diagnosis as we can get. Okay? And sometimes it's a little hard. It's not as easy as it sounds, and on top of that, they may have more than one cause. But nevertheless, high-dose opioid cases need to have a specific etiologic diagnosis for a whole lot of reasons. One is for the patient wants to know what's the matter with them. We need to know what's the matter with them. The, the, the third-party payer needs to know what's the matter with them. But really, folks, the time has come when we start diagnosing somebody with neuropathic pain, myofascial syndromes, degenerative spine disease, those diagnoses are too vague. They're too vague. All they're saying is they got pain somewhere and we're going to throw a symptomatic treatment at them. So my call is for let's get specific. And there's no reason why we can't do that. Nobody in cardiology or rheumatology would ever think to treat a patient without giving them a specific ideologic diagnosis. And I think our field has come to where we can do the same thing and should do the same thing. Okay, arachnoiditis, we'll have an hour session on that tomorrow. I highly encourage you to attend. You wouldn't know what you're looking at here. Let me hold the questions till afterwards because I'm not going to have much time. We're going to run out. Uh, here, you wouldn't know what you're looking for here except I want to explain the MRIs to you a little bit. One of the things that has made these studies possible and this presentation possible is the advancing technology of the MRIs since 1987. And they now do, this is what's called a contrast MRI. Now a contrast MRI, if you're not familiar with it, and pretty soon some of you are going to be ordering them, they do two views. One from the side, and one is axial. And that usually is where your legs are spread, you're in the, you're in the camera, and the camera shoots images coming up through your pelvis in slices. Here is such a case, a 46-year-old male, and again, without going into great detail, you are looking at this man at about, this is right about L3. And what he has is his equine nerve roots are all clumped, and this one is stuck to the arachnoid lining. The arachnoid lining is the covering of the spinal canal or the, the meninges. And the arachnoid lining has cells in it that will become inflamed and they will attach by adhesions to your nerve roots or even to the spinal cord itself. And so you see arachnoiditis both in the cervical area as well as the lumbar area. It has been considered a rare disease, but now with our ability to diagnose it, 
I will give you this challenge. I believe that 85 to 90 percent of patients we're calling failed back surgery syndrome have arachnoiditis, both lumbar and cervical. Eilers-Danlos, here's a young woman, Chiari malformation, here operated on. She also has arachnoiditis, and you know that because she's put a heating pad on her long enough to burn herself. A heating pad burns. The only people I ever see that do that have arachnoiditis. Okay, so it's kind of the one signs you see. That's how bad the pain is. And without treating these people, of course, are in bed. Marfan syndrome. This young lady came to us after a cesarean section in which she, the epidural caused total paralysis from the waist down with severe pain. So she got off the table, severe pain, couldn't walk, been to all kinds of universities, and I won't say a whole lot about it now, but I will tomorrow night. She now walks. She now functions, can ride a motorbike. She had two more children, but she's all on the new protocols for arachnoid, for neuroinflammation and for neurogenic pain. So anyway. Okay. I mentioned this a while ago and I said I'd mention it again. Those people who have need high dose opioids based on what we've been able to find out have these characteristics. They have severe centralized pain with neuroinflammation. They have multiple genetic defects, both in their cytochrome system as well as in their receptor binding capability. And a fair number of them have the inability to use oral opioids. Now the causes of gastrointestinal malabsorption are somewhat numerous actually. The major one is multiple pelvic surgeries and peritoneal adhesions with neuropathies. They also, it turns out a lot of people don't realize that the cytochromes are not just in the liver, they're in the intestine. So when you swallow that opioid, those cytochromes go to work on it. The minute that thing passes from the stomach into the duodenum, the cytochromes go to work on those opioids. So if you've got defects in them, then those people don't, their hydrocodone is not going to work, their tramadol is not going to work, their oxycodone is not going to work, and maybe not their morphine or anything else, depending on how severe it may be. Uh, traumatic brain injury and cervical neck degeneration, you, you might say, why are those on there? I want you to recall something to your basic schooling. The vagus nerve goes down through the neck. The vagus nerve controls the intestine and the stomach relative to a great deal of its absorptive capability. So if you have an injury in the neck or you've got a traumatic brain injury, look out. You're probably going to have some defect in the gastrointestinal's ability to use oral opioids and maybe neuropathic agents or antidepressants. So you've got to be on alert for vagus nerve dysfunction or dysautonomia as we call it. Autoimmune disorders, the same thing. Now, let me talk about for just a moment, let's take, we're going to take what you do about this now. What strategies are available to us for these patients? Let's take, first off, malabsorption of opioids. You're going to have to get some non-oral opioid 
into those people, into those people. Now, you've got a lot of choices. No, actually, you don't have a lot. You've got a few suppositories. You've got some transmucosal compounds now. You've got some patches, and you've got some injections. I hate to say it, but I've got a fair number of people. All I've been able to do is go to the injections. I can't treat them otherwise. I've got to go to the dilaudid injections several times a day. Ketamine, Pardon? Ketamine. And you can use ketamine, too. Injectable. Oh, yeah. And also for the depression, for, yeah. the, for the earlier screening. Yeah. I, I assert you have 10 to 20% depression in there. They never oh, yeah. They're going to be depressed. The ketamine, and you know. Oh, yeah. Ketamine is going to come later. Oh, we use it in everybody. Oh, yeah. I mean, ketamine should be standard today in these patients. Yeah. Yeah. No. Oral, nasal, infusion, whatever you like. You can't give them enough ketamine. <laughs> and, yeah. No, I, I'm with you. Uh, uh, pharmacogenetic testing. Just a couple of quick things without going into it in great detail. Uh, 101 patients here. We have a poster of it on out here. Of these 101 people, and we just did these three cytochromes, uh, over 90% had at least one defect. Uh, two, 30% had two defects, 8% three. And so these people have multiple cytochrome defects. And also, you should be aware that there's also been kind of a misconception that it's only the 2D6 that deactivates certain compounds. All these cytochromes will come into play if they have one defect, the liver will go to another. So, and then, I don't want to give a class on genetics here, but today the other thing that's quite common is your mu opioid receptor binding ability. And if you have a low binding ability or an intermediate, they're going to need a higher opioid dose. Now, 30% of our patients will have either an intermediate or low opioid binding capacity. Catechol-O-methyltransferase. If you have a high COMT or an intermediate, you may need more opioid. 60% of our patients have either an intermediate or a high, in addition to cytochrome defects. In other words, what I'm telling you is, when you test these people, it just goes on, on, and on. Now, they have new panels out called addictive panels, where you measure transporters and different enzymes, and you start throwing that into the mix. It's amazing how defective some of these people are on how many genetic defects they may have. Okay. And, and I do think that when you go to insurance payers and try to get people paid, they need to know about these genetic defects. If you're going to try to get fentanyl paid for, OxyContin paid for, and you're going to ask somebody to pay all that money, I think you may need these. I do. I have to use these today to get payment. And I put that on every prior authorization for high-dose opioids. This is the genetic defects. There are four opioids that bypass the cytochrome system. I use all four of these liberally. Levorfenol has gotten too expensive to probably prescribe, but nevertheless, these four will bypass the cytochrome system 
and they could become very useful. Now fentanyl. Let me describe a little bit about fentanyl for you that maybe some of you know this, maybe some of you don't. First off, the opioid binding capacity of fentanyl is 100 times that of morphine. It is 30 times that of dilaudid. The bottom line, there is no opioid even close to the pain relieving capability of fentanyl. So when you have somebody on fentanyl, whether it's a patch, sublingual, compounded, there is no substitute. So these people who are insurance companies won't pay for fentanyl anymore, I get calls all the time, what do I do next? My answer is, I don't know. There's no substitute for fentanyl. There's no crossover. There's no alternative. You just suffer. So when you put somebody on fentanyl, remember, you're using our next most potent opioid is dilaudid. It's 30 times more potent than is dilaudid. Secondly, the other thing about fentanyl, which is very interesting, is this. It is the only, the only opioid we have that purely uses the 3A4 cytochrome system. All the rest of them use 3A5, 2D6, or use others. Fentanyl, one enzyme. And it's the enzyme we all have. To have a deficiency of 3A4 is one in 10,000. I've seen it once or twice, but it's rare as hence. Consequently, fentanyl is your ace in the hole. You've got somebody, you don't know what to do with them. You can put them on fentanyl. Just remember, if you ever have to discontinue the fentanyl, you've got a problem. Okay? So it's a blessing and a curse. So that's the trouble with fentanyl, as well as the good aspects of fentanyl. It's also why the underworld is making car fentanyl and zoo fentanyl and putting it out on the streets and why you're getting all these overdoses. Okay. They're even more potent than regular fentanyl. Now, in the time I have left, I'm going to you, without going into great detail, the protocol that I now use for people with these severe conditions. I've had the most experience in using this protocol with arachnoiditis. And that is because it is such a devastating disease where you either treat it or they, become, they can become paralyzed, they die, suicide, it's, it's an awful condition. But I would like to introduce you to my personal method. Today, my protocol is divided into four components. Neuroinflammation control, symptomatic pain relief, and that's why ketamine and all that falls in that. Okay, our symptomatic treatments are still good. We're not discarding those, we're just adding to them. The three other legs are added to what we're now doing. Neurogenesis, and then spinal cord exercises. I'm not gonna have time to go into that to a great extent, other than to say that the spinal cord physiology is something that everyone should know. We change over our spinal fluid four times a day, and if you don't do certain kinds of exercises, you use adhesions, particularly with arachnoiditis or RSD and some of these things inside the spinal canal. And so the spinal cord itself needs to be exercised, and they're real simple exercises, frankly. But, and so I consider that a major component. Now, 
The missing link has been this one, neuroinflammation control. Now, the research in the last decade points the way. The discovery that we have microglial cells and that the microglial cells are really an immune cell or a mast cell laying in wait in the central nervous system is the key to this. Now, in the knee joint where you have rheumatoid arthritis, that inflammation is caused by a lymphocyte. There are no lymphocytes in the central nervous system. There are microglial cells, and they cause an inflammation that has some of the same characteristics as we get in peripheral inflammation in joints and muscle, but it's also quite different in many ways. But I want to make something abundantly clear here. I don't know how many of you have ever been involved with rheumatology, but in rheumatology, we never thought that we could cure rheumatoid arthritis. We knew that we could put the inflammation into suppression. We know it could go into remission, maybe for long periods, but it would recur. You need to think in terms of neuroinflammation in the same way. Now, John Belilo here, my associate. John, raise your hand. He has some posters here also. What we've discovered is that we can't cure neuroinflammation at this point, but it looks like we can control it. Now, let me warn you, some of you aren't going to like the protocol. Okay? It's new. It's different. You didn't come out of rheumatology or endocrinology, so you're going to be afraid of it. You're going to not like it. I want to warn you right out front. And it's not even a controlled drug. It's safe. You're not going to know what to do. It's even cheap. Cheap, safe, and different. I don't know. You might panic. One other thing that you should know before going on. It's one of the lessons I want you to leave here today with. The agents that we use to treat peripheral inflammation do not work in the central nervous system. Very few, if any. So therefore, our Motrins and our Naprosins, our cortisols, don't work. They do not enter. They don't cross the blood-brain barrier. So you have a whole set of agents here which are going to be strange to you, and a, an approach that you're going to say, do we really have to do this? And here's my answer to you. No, you don't. You can go the old way. Okay? The old way. Now, what's the old way on dealing with people who don't respond to 200 milligrams of morphine equivalents? More opioids. Our treatment of high-dose opioid cases has been to power through with higher dosages and different opioids. Remember, we rotate, we add. So we've been powering through. The other traditional strategy on dealing with high-dose treatment failures is more opioids. Okay? So you've got that option. You've got that option. To go this route, it takes some doing. It takes a lot of rethinking. It's going to take all kinds of things. Now, the next two sessions I'm going to talk about, the next two days are there. Also, I actually have the written protocol to hand you, if somebody wants to see it, that we actually use. Now, it's been written so any nurse practitioner, even outside of pain management, any physician, any PA can do these things. 
because they're pretty safe. A lot safer than what we're doing now. It's just different. Just different. Okay. Now, neuroinflammation control. One of the first things you want to do is try to determine something about severity. And you can do that. I use a little questionnaire. Today in my facility, it's standard to take a C-reactive protein, erythrocyte sedimentation rate. You can now get a cytokine panel from uh, Quest or LabCorp. It's not as helpful as I was hoping it was going to be, but you can get some interleukins. John Belilo has a special research lab where we've been doing a lot of the studies, but that's not available yet to the average practitioner. But you can actually take agents. The time has come for our field to understand what these are. Cytokines, chemokines, and interleukins. Cytokine is the general term. Those are subcategories underneath it. And the base treatment for neuroinflammation that we use is Ketorolac injections once a week or more. And there's two corticoids that will cross the blood-brain barrier and enter the spinal fluid. Dexamethasone and methylprednisolone. See those agents right there? These agents come out of in vitro studies on the microglial cell. And they have been shown to suppress the microglial cell and neuroinflammation. And they're being used in combinations. We use every one of those on there for, at different times for different purposes, all of those compounds. Interesting enough, they're kind of weak, but there's actually some dietary supplements that have a literary backup in suppressing neuroinflammation. And you never heard anybody with a little carnitine or omega fatty acids. So these are something that anybody can do. Uh, the time is running short. Neurogenesis means regrowth of nerves, and that takes some doing. I'm not encouraging anybody necessarily to do it at this time. It is complex. You have to replace these hormones. And we're using these human chorionic gonadotrophin, oxytocin, pentoxifilin as the agent that the French have shown will start dissolving adhesion. And we're using it in our facilities at this time. Now, the next two sessions tomorrow night, we will talk more about that, so I won't go into details, other than to give you some idea that this is what we're currently using at this time. Spinal cord exercises, that's their vision. And let's get back now to close out. No, we haven't forgot our symptomatic treatments. That's still our stock and trade. We're still going to use them. But I will say this. My use of opioids in my own facilities decreased 50% in the last two years. I use far fewer opioids than I used to. A lot of it's ketamine. We use ketamine. We use catecholaminergic agents. All of these things are symptomatic, but they do help. And they're not going away. But when you add your neuroinflammatory components and neurogenic components to these, you start getting somewhere with these people and in treating these terrible conditions like RSD and arachnoiditis and post-viral syndromes, you really do have to start using a lot of these things. Summary, there's a subgroup of chronic pain patients who fail standard treatment. Regardless of what anybody says, we still have a need to use high-dose opioids and to treat people who are, gonna, who are failing our standard treatment. They will always be with us. Maybe not in the numbers we have in the past, but they'll always be with us. The new standard is anything 
above those dosages. And the major causes for failure are genetic defects, opioid malabsorption, severe centralized pain, and a failure to control neuroinflammation. In other words, in order to need those high-dose opioids or to fail standard treatments, you've got to have three bad things happen to you. First off, you've got to have a terrible pain problem. Secondly, you've got to have a lot of genetic defects. And thirdly, your pain is going to be centralized with neuroinflammation. So those are your characteristics of people who are going to need the most intensive and the highest care. I've said I'd get everybody out of here at 6.30. Uh, I will stay around and answer some questions. Now, I do have if the protocol that we use. It's really written for arachnoiditis, but you're welcome to take it. We've updated this thing now three times in the last six months, and it's continually being updated as we get new information. You're welcome to it. Okay? You're welcome to it. And I will take whatever questions you hear from the floor or outside, and I hope to see some of